And uh, we're in Luke chapter 2, looking at the shepherd's story this year. And uh, so I want you to pick up with me in verse number 8, Luke 2, verse 8, as we work our way all the way to verse number 20, and look at the resolve, the shepherd's resolve. So I'm going to start reading in Luke 2, starting in verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began to say to one another, Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, and they found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as it had been told them. Heavenly Father, we are privileged again to look into this text, to see something that's familiar and yet something so challenging. As we review these words, as we muse upon them, as they work deep into our hearts today, I pray, Lord, that you may sufficiently challenge us with your word. Drive us to yourself. May we look for our Savior and see him and come to know him better. And of all these things, Lord, as you're working in our hearts, we, we ask you to make us uh, different because we've spent time with you. Thank you, Lord, for the time before us now and the time in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was contemplating this uh, sermon series, uh, The Shepherd's Resolve, uh, to see what the Lord has done, I, I broke it into four parts. Um, the resolve to go, we talked about that last week. The resolve to see is what we will see today. That's in verse number 15 here. Uh, as they responded to the message, came about when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, that the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing which the Lord has made known to us. That will be our focus today. We'll get later into the passage next week and see their resolve to tell. And then finally, their resolve to praise, which will be a couple of weeks from now. I find it interesting, and I don't know if you've noticed this. We read this passage over and over, and we have not only have seen it many times, but we've heard Linus read it off. How many years that we've watched the Peanuts Christmas. But uh, did you notice that the angels did not tell them to go? 
they just reported the good news. They, I find that very interesting. They didn't say, no, go. Get over there. Go look at it. They didn't say a word. They left it to the shepherds to respond to good news. And I find that very interesting because I use the word resolve here. It's a, it's a determination. It's a decision. It's a commitment. Um, it's a firm determination to do something. And that's what I like about this message is that it, it wasn't just laid out there and then everybody went on the, with their regular business. In this situation, there was a decision made to follow through, to see, to go, to hear, to tell. These things are very interesting to me. And I like the fact that this phrase, let us go, makes their story so unique. Because I talked about it last week, and I'll just mention again for a minute. This is a contrast, and it's an easy one to make. But a contrast to Herod, the scribes, the religious people in Jerusalem, they all got the message, didn't they? When the Magi came in and said, we've heard of the baby being born, the king of the Jews, and they did not go. They did not go. It was only a six-mile journey, folks. They did not go. And yet when we read this story, the very first response of the shepherds was, let us go. And I like that resolve. I, I like that decision. Matter of fact, the word to go is a bigger word than just two letters. In the Greek, it means to go and keep going and keep going on through and on through and on through until we find the child we're looking for. That's their resolve. They were not going to stop short until they found the child. I told you last week, this wasn't Hillsdale, Oklahoma they were searching there was Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was swollen with people at this time of year because of a census going on, because taxes were part of the story. And remember, Mary and Joseph found no rooms. There was nothing available. There were people everywhere. And if you're going to look for a baby in a city full of people, not an easy task. But they had a resolve that they were going to look and keep looking until they found him. I like the way they said that. But this is, this is what especially is on my heart, is that this resolve followed the most significant message ever given to mankind. It was good news of great joy. It was about a Savior, right? And they said, we will go. That's a response that I like. And quite a contrast to Herod or any of the royal court or any of the spiritual advisors of that day. They went and they were resolved to go. But now today, they were resolved to see. Let's take it that notch further there. When you see it right there in verse 15, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see. And see. Now I have fun, of course, with Greek languages. I bring that up every now and then when maybe a lot. But uh, I, we, we look at words, and I've, I love words. I'm fascinated with words. And there are a bunch of Greek words for seeing. All different kinds of seeing. There's the seeing uh, of just the normal open your eyes and you see what's around you. There's the seeing of where you say, I see, right? Where you got this mental response. There, there's the seeing of, one of my favorites is, 
The one where you're looking down so carefully to see something that you're willing to put yourself in some sort of physical discomfort to do it. That's when you're looking under the bed, right? When you're looking for something. This is the word that they used when they were looking into the tomb. On the outside, they looked in. They were, they were all bent over and they were trying to get a good glimpse of what's going on in there. And so, they're fun words to look at. And so, I, I pulled up two for you today. And I want to show you what this word is that we see right here in the text. We, we have the word harao in the Greek. It's simple to see or to perceive something. It's it's different from the average word we call it blepo. It's the process of the the eyeballs working. There is a the the physiology of the task where where your eye has sensed something a light ray or or something out there has stimulated the nerves of the eye and it's worked its way back to the brain in the message system and. That's an incredible thing to study. If you ever have the time to study the nerves and how the messages are sent. And, and to me right now, I see thousands of lights and people and, and all these, and my eyes are soaking all that in. These messages are going constantly back and forth, back and forth, back and forth at, at speeds I can't even imagine. And it's just an incredible thing to just talk about the physical sight that we have and being able to see what, what a blessing that is. I found it even more after my cataract surgery. <laughs> Boy, is it great to see. That's a good word, but that's not the word. The word we're looking at here is the one that has a mental aspect to what you see. It is actually not just to look at it, glance at it, and move on, but to discern what is that. What is that? To see with the mind to perceive something, we use it sometimes for the word to know. To know. I've experienced it. I'm acquainted with it. I know what that is. I've seen it. That's the word that they chose to speak, as Luke records it here, when they heard the message. Let us go and see. It was much more than just, oh, let's just see if there's a really a baby out there. They wanted to know. They wanted to understand. I think that's really quite amazing. That was their resolve. It was more than just, hey, let's just go see what that Christmas tree looks like in Enid. Right? They wanted to know, is the word really inside the word. Now, what did the angels tell them in that message? Let's go back just a few verses here. And the angel came to them, and in verse number, let's see. Where am I going to start? Uh, verse 10. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which shall be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. A sign. This will be a sign for you. Have you ever thought that through? What is, what, what is a sign? What's the advantage of a sign? Well, it could help you find what you're looking to find, right? If you're going to have to go and search, isn't it nice to know what you're looking for? That if you're eager to go, 
it's nice to know what to what parameters to work on here. They were given some clues in a sign. A sign. I'm going to suggest to you, I don't think it was an easy hunt they were on. And just by the nature of this sign, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. We said, well, that's Christmas. That's what it's supposed to be. First clue. Go look for a baby. Oh, let's make it easier. It's a boy. Does that help? You're going into a city swollen full of people. Go find a baby boy. Okay. Uh, second clue, he's going to be la- wrapped in swaddling bands. We use those words, bands or cloths. And you say, well, that's significant. Matter of fact, read some commentaries, and they'll come up with this thing, and they'll say, well, you know, the reason it's significant, because it's also a picture of his burial, because that's the way they wrapped a body when they were to bury it, in these bands and such like that. And I suppose that's true, but at the same time, uh, that's the only way you really could wrap a body at that time. It was so heavy, you had to do it in strips. Um, but what was interesting is that wrapping a baby, a baby wrapped up like this, was not going to be so easy to find either because that was the way they did it in those days. That was their custom for wrapping a child when it is born uh, to keep them warm, to keep them covered up. The the idea is real simple, and if you've seen a baby in the, that's less than three months old, have you ever seen its uh, kind of spastic way of throwing its arms? Ah! When you tried to hold that child, isn't it nice that they're all tied up? They like it too, by the way. But that's what you you see them do this with the sudden impulses. And I'm thinking, if I'm looking for a child and I'm looking for one all wrapped up like that, I think most of them would be. And then I think, well, okay, third clue: in a manger. And you think, well, that's going to be easy except for the fact that the town is swollen with people. And where else are you going to stay if all the rooms are full? Most homes, if I understand the research right, most homes had stables in them. And they might have been underneath the house or in the back of the yard or someplace like that because people had pets and animals and they didn't have them live in their bedrooms and stuff, so they had stables there. And so it was not uncommon for people to have these stables behind their homes and to go looking behind every single home that had a stable, I don't think it was an easy task. So you're looking for a baby boy who's wrapped up like all the other babies and laying in a manger where there might have been a lot of other babies like that. Maybe. But they knew something. They weren't looking for a girl baby. They knew they weren't looking for an older child. And they knew they were not looking for a child in a house, an inn, or any other public structure. That was their clues. Sound easy yet? I think it was a bit of a challenge. That's why they said, let's go and go and go until we find it. But this is also what I think is very significant about this. And I bring it to your your thinking, and I bring it to your heart today. The angel declared that this was a sign for them. And I want to bring up this simple fact. The Jews and their signs, it's all over Scripture, but to be given a sign was not a complimentary thing. They were given signs because of disbelief. 
That's what you find as you trace it through Scripture. The religious leaders in the days of Jesus were notorious for this, and Jesus even said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And he said this as well. Go with me. Keep your bookmark here. John chapter 6. I want to show you something. You say, well, how bad was their disbelief? Let's talk about this for a minute. And why the signs look like they do. In in John chapter 6, toward the very end of it, verse number 30. You're going to start actually in verse 1 with me. But there was a group one day that was with Jesus and they asked for a sign. And their question was so simple. They said, in verse 30, What then do you do for a sign that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It sounds harmless. But let me put it in its context. Back in chapter 6 here, in verse number 1. Just go right back to the start. I'm going to start working my way through this text. You can count with me, alright? After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. He was healing people in a miraculous way. You see sign number one right there? They saw that. The Jews, then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing a large crowd, they were coming to him, said to Philip, Where, shall, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? He was saying this to test him, for he knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, saying, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, uh, for everyone to receive even a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these among so many people? And Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down. The number is about 5,000 people. Some people say that's just the men count. There's ladies and there's children too. So it could have been a lot lot higher maybe. Jesus then took the loaves and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish as much as they wanted. Miracle number two. He just fed 5,000 people or more. They were all filled, it says. He said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of the barley loaves, which they were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign, you see that in verse 14? They saw it, right? They saw the sign, which he had performed. They said, truly, this is truly the prophets come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intent on coming to take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started out to cross the sea uh, to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of strong wind that was blowing. Then, when they had rowed about three or four miles out... They saw Jesus walking on the sea. What number are we up to? Three. You got it, Luke? Okay. Third 
miracle here. He's walking on the sea and drawing near the boat. And they were frightened and he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. I just love the way that sees. Isn't that great? They were willing. Okay. <laughs> I just think that's funny the way they wrote that. Um, John was there and he wrote that. He says, yeah, we were willing to let him in. And immediately the boat was at the land in which they were going. Number four, right? The next day the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered into his disciples with his disciples into that other boat and that the disciples had gone away alone and they came with other boats to Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. So the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples. They themselves got into the small boats. They came to Capernaum and they found Jesus on the other side of the sea and said, Rabbi, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, because, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. It's now breakfast time, and guess what you want? You want more. You want more. Do not work for the food which perishes, for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of God will give to you, for on him, the Father, God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may do the works of God? And Jesus answered them and said, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. I'll paraphrase verse 30. Okay, so, prove it. Give us another sign. How many did you count, Luke? You got four. Four signs in less than 24 hours. And guess what? We need another one. One more. That's all I need. Really? Just one more. That's all. Show us a sign. You know, this is a true picture of story after story after story in Scripture. Take Gideon. You know him? Good old Gideon. It's also in the chapter 6. I don't know what chapter 6 is to like this, but chapter 6 of the book of Judges. Here the angel of the Lord appears to a man named Gideon while he's beating out wheat in the wine press. And that's a funny story, but we'll go on. The angel of the Lord walks up to him and says to him, The Lord is with you. Is that pretty clear? Anyone have trouble with that phrase? The Lord is with you. Gideon says, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, which our father told us about? Didn't the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? Now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord looked at him and said, Go, in this your strength, and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? You heard that. Have I not sent you? And he says, Lord, how shall I deliver to Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh. I'm the youngest in my family's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I am with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. And Gideon says, Now if I don't favor in your sight, I'm just standing there saying, What? Gideon, the Lord is with you. The Lord sent you. The Lord would defeat the Midianites. And you come out and say, Do I have favor in your sight? Isn't that remarkable? We haven't seen any miracles. He says this in verse 17. This is classic. 
then show me a sign that it's really you who speaks to me. You say, well, yeah, that's Gideon's problem. How about a man named Thomas? You ever read Thomas' little response to Jesus and his resurrection? Unless I see his hands with the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nail and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Thomas was from Missouri. Did you know that? (laughs) Show me. Show me. Paul, the Apostle Paul, when he's writing to the Corinthians, 50 years later, you think by then they'd get it figured out, right? Some 50 years later after the birth of Christ, he starts to write in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and he says this in verse 18 through 23. I'll read it. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, this world through the wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews asked for a sign. And Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to the Jew, a stumbling block, and to the Gentiles, foolishness. Even after all these years, they still said, we need a sign to believe it. We need a sign to believe it. Give us another sign. The, the Corinthians had convinced themselves that even speaking in tongues was a sign that they must have favor with God, and that they're blessed by God because they could speak in signs. And guess what? That's quite the opposite. Because what it comes down to when we study this, and I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians 14. If you want to see it in verse 20, 21, 22, you'll see it. But I'm going to read it to you. When Paul says, you're worried about signs to believe by. Do you not know that tongues was a sign that you are in trouble? Not that you're in favor, but that you're in trouble. Tongues was a flashing red light on the dashboard. It said something is wrong under the hood. And that was true of these people. Back all the way in the Jews in the Old Testament days, Paul brings this up, and it's so simple. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, and in your thinking be mature. It is stated in the law By men of strange tongues and by lips of strangers, I will speak to these people. And even so, they will not listen to me. Even if I do it. They won't listen. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to those who don't. And this is what's interesting to me. I could go on and on and on and show you some things. But it was not complimentary to be said, I'm going to give you a sign. (laughs) Why? Because all the testimony of Scripture says that was a sign that you didn't believe the message. You didn't believe the message. And yet, with all that said, remember, it was the angels of the Lord who offered the sign before the shepherds said, prove it. 
This is interesting to me because it's, I think it's a wonderful gesture of mercy. A very kind act because the Lord knows we're prone to disbelief. Are we not? We're very quick to disbelief. He knows that His Word is rarely taken by faith. He knows that to believe it at face value is something that's challenging to so many people. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're immature. He knows that our minds are not easy to convince or move to resolve. And so He condescends to our level and He gives us clues. (laughs) He says, I'll give you a sign so that you may find what you're looking for. And you say, well, that's pretty incredible. But think for a minute this way. If you go over to Matthew and you read the story of Herod again, and Herod getting the information about the birth of Christ, it was a remarkable visit that day that the Magi showed up. They walked right into his courtroom, and they announced when they entered into Jerusalem, where is he that is born king of the Jews? That's a remarkable statement on top of a remarkable visit. It was stunning. And then, the cosmic event that was going along with it. We have seen a star in the east. And we have come to worship him. Herod heard that, didn't he? He heard those very words. And he must have believed them because he was troubled. He, he and all Jerusalem with him, and he gathered all the chief priests together and the scribes of the people, and he asked them when was the Messiah to be born. Where? And guess what? Scripture clearly stated where it was. It said, and they researched it, and they came up with it and said, well, in Bethlehem of Judea, that's what's been written by the prophets. You, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth the ruler who shall shepherd my people Israel. And so he questioned them about the timing of the star. And he got that information. He called them aside. When did that star appear? And he sent them to Bethlehem. He had to have believed that the message was true. Go and search, he said. Go and search for the child. And when, not if, when you have found him, come back and tell me. What's all that? It's remarkable he never went himself, and yet he heard the message so clearly. He knew the message that the baby was there. He did not go. Listen, we can load up all day long on the signs. We could bring in all the events. We could bring all the evidences. We could bring in all the verses we want, all the testimonies we want. You can hear the truth from God's Word today about Jesus Christ and Him being a Savior, but you can still have a stubborn heart. You can still have an unbelieving heart. You can still have an unresolved heart. The kind of heart the shepherds had is beautiful, isn't it? It's not the one that I've been speaking of here this morning. The Lord had mercy to condescend to the mindset of a Jewish shepherd and said, here's your sign. And guess what they did with it? They grabbed it and ran. They went in a hurry, it says, to find the Christ. I can't help but think that God was up to heaven and he smiled. Look at him go! Isn't that great? Just like he wanted them to do, they had a resolve. A resolve to go, but even better, a resolve to see. They wanted to see, not a mere glance. They didn't want to just 
see, you know, this physical thing. They wanted to understand the resolve went beyond the physical process of nerves and, and brain messages. They wanted to see and understand. Now, there's a little picture of effort here I know. To understand takes study, doesn't it? You have to invest something in here. Uh, you can read, and maybe you do this too, but you can read a whole page of Scripture with your eyes and not understand one word you just read. Am I talking about your New Year's resolution, maybe? <laughs> How many of us do this? We say, well, I'm going to commit myself to reading the Bible in a whole year. And we go and we use our eyes. And because the eyes know the routine, we scan from one line to the next, always from the left all the way across the right, and then on to the next line, left to right, and left to right. And you know your eyes could do that without your brain ever engaging? You could read and read and read and never see the words and say, oh, I did my work today. You covered, I mean, your eyes did its job. You scanned. I, I found students did this, too, in school, too. They scanned their homework the same way, just mechanical words. Not retaining the message. That's the picture I see here of the difference the difference that I see with these shepherds, because they wanted to see. They wanted to know. They wanted to go. I love that response to an invitation. You don't see it often in God's Word. But what you do see often in God's Word is God's invitation to you to come and see. How often that is shown. It, it was when Moses and the Israelites got up to the Red Sea. They're standing there saying, oh, we're in trouble. And God says, look and see the salvation of the Lord. And the waters split open. It was Moses who was invited to go up on top of a mountain and look and see at the land that God had promised them. It was Abraham, remember, who was asked to look and see and count the stars. Do you believe God could provide? It was God who took Joshua down to Jericho's doors and said, Look and see! I gave it to you. How often God has asked them to look and see, look and see, and the stories go on and on. But one of my favorites was when a man named Philip came to a, a man named Nathaniel. And Nathaniel was sitting there, and, and Philip walks in and says, We have found him who Moses said in the law and in the prophets, that Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. We found him! The one prophets wrote about, and Nathaniel answers and says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And you know what his invitation was? Come and see. Come and see. That's our word. You know, that's the exact same word we're studying with the shepherds here. That see. Come and know Him. Come and see. Come and see. I, I love that because it goes just beyond the function of the eye. It's a resolve to understand. God has done something wonderful here. That's what the shepherds got to understand. God has done something magnificent here. It doesn't seem right that we give it just a mere look. 
It doesn't seem sufficient. I, I have a friend on Facebook. He posts sunsets all the time. He loves taking pictures of sunsets. He goes out there. And, and I know people, that if they hear of a rainbow, they run outside to look at it. Are you one of those? you got to see it for yourself. Some people travel a long ways to go over and look at the Grand Canyon or the Pacific Ocean. Or some people even get in ships and go up into space so they could see things they've never seen before. The heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare His righteousness, Psalm 50. The heavens declare His righteousness, Psalm 97. The heavens declare, the heavens declare, the heavens declare. And every time we look up, we say, Wow, God, You are great. But you know what a cross declares? It's a demonstration. Romans 5.8 says, He demonstrated His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. A cross is always a display that God loves you. He loves you that much. He gave His Son for you. It's a gift. Isn't it? It's a gift to you. It's a gift to you. I talked about this last week. I have this gift down here on the table. Talked about whether or not it's yours. And if it had your name on it, does that make it yours? No. Because it could sit here the rest of the year, next year, and the next five years. When does it become yours? When you take it. Let me ask you this. When do you know what's in the box? It's when you open it and see. The message I declare to you over and over and over again is that we have a Savior, folks. That's what the angel said. There is a Savior, Christ the Lord. He is given to you. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. And it, it, and it should be a response that follows. If we follow true to the shepherd's uh, style of, of response here, they not only went, but they went to see. They weren't satisfied with just knowing that baby is born. They had to see with their own eyes. They had to understand. And when I declare to you that this is what the Lord has made known to us, are you going to come and see it? He has sent His Son to die for you. That's the gospel message. He took your place on a cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. And if He didn't do it, nobody else could. But Jesus did. He died for you. And you could believe that a thousand different ways. You could believe it because pastor said so. You could believe it because you saw it in God's Word. You could believe it because you've heard about it for many years. Or maybe it was your grandmother. Maybe it was your uncle. Maybe it was somebody who talked to you about Christ years and years ago. And you said, yeah, I understand. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. That's true. But you've got to receive it. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become, or the right to become the sons of God. We can put the present out before you every single week. The gift of God is Jesus Christ and Him your Savior. There's a difference between a Savior and my Savior. Which is He to you? If you've heard the message, you look, you look, Look, how many times? 
even verses like taste and see that the Lord is good. I think of verses all over that the invitation is there and it's just stubborn, unbelieving, hard-hearted hearts that don't respond. I don't want a heart like that, do you? What's your resolve today when you consider the message of a Savior? He's given for you. Make that a fact. He was given for you. Because you need a Savior, and so do I. He was given to you that you might come to believe and know, and know of God's love for you and how much it is that He gave His Son. I'm not asking you just to come today. I want you to see. I want you to see. I want you to know, convinced in your heart, not a heart full of disbelief anymore, folks, but a heart that knows Jesus Christ is my Savior. My Savior. If you want to talk to me, I'd love to talk to you. I want to share you more if you want to know more. Next week we're going to move on to the next step. It's fun. I love this passage. But let's start right here with prayer. Heavenly Father, you know every heart in this room. You know every single person in this room and their relationship with you. Whether or not they know you, or whether or not they don't. Whether or not Christ is their Savior, or whether or not He's just a Savior. Today, Lord, work in our midst. If there's a heart that needs Christ today, may they see their need and reach out and call upon the name of Lord Jesus Christ so that they may be saved. Lord, do your work in our midst, for you're the only one who can do it. You're the only one who can change a life that's dead in trespasses and sins and make it alive in your, in your name. And I pray you do that today. Change somebody's life forever, we pray, who heard and understood today. And may we all go forth knowing what we have seen, knowing our Savior and rejoicing in that. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.